Welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy, the supporting sponsor of Onco Farm. Sponsor, uh, we'll use that term loosely here. Happy Valentine's Day. This is uh, January. No. <laughs> It's been a long week, folks. February 14th, 2019, otherwise known as Valentine's Day. Or for many of us, uh, it's an important day because uh, two months from today, Game of Thrones, uh, the last season begins. Uh, today, we return to our landmarks in Oncology Pharmacy series, where we talk about a landmark uh, publication in uh, oncology uh, related to drug therapy. Today, we're going to talk about the IRIS study which is the, the big study for a matnib in chronic phase CML. This is, uh, you know, maybe the, one of the most, I mean, certainly one of the most important studies as far as oncology pharmacy is concerned. We've talked about, you know, adjuvant CMF and adjuvant Fulvox, and those studies are great, and those chemotherapy regimens are, are very beneficial, but they are second fiddle to surgery because it's the adjuvant setting. <clears throat> in this case, we're talking about a chronic hematologic disorder that we have turned into, uh, in many cases, almost a non-fatal chronic lifelong disease that is controlled with medication somewhat akin to hypertension or diabetes. So let's start back in, uh, in 1960, publication Science by Howell and Hungerford uh, of a case series of seven patients with a blood abnormalities where they find uh, a chromosomal abnormality. I think they even used the word minute chromosome, because the part of chromosome 22 that relocates to chromosome 9 results in a very, very tiny chromosome 22. At that time, they didn't know, uh, you know about the, the chromosomal rearrangement. That came in 1973 from Janet Raleigh, who actually discovered what we now call the Philadelphia chromosome, the translocation 922, which is, for the most practical purposes, pathogenic for CML. This makes CML a fairly unique well, it makes it the only disease that I know of where there's one abnormality, one mutation that can be blocked that basically renders the disease relatively benign um, for most patients. Now, that's not entirely true, uh, as we'll see when we look at the data. So, let's talk about the IRIS study. There are two publications and maybe three time points we're going to talk about. The first being the New England Journal of Medicine publication in March of 2003. Uh, which was the initial results of the IRIS study after 19 months of follow-up, and then the 2006 uh, publication in Integral Medicine in December, which was after five years of follow-up. Uh, so I'm going to start, I'm going to use the 2006 paper as kind of the main paper, but I'll refer back to the 03 paper. So uh, the 06 paper, the lead author is Brian Drucker from Oregon State, and that's where Matnib came from. We could, and probably will at some point, do a podcast on the origins of Matnib because it's a, it's a fascinating story. So IRIS stands for the International Randomized Study of Interferon and STI-571, or Signal Transduction Inhibitor 571, <clears throat> which was the first name for imatinib. So this study was a multicenter international open-label phase 3 randomized study, patients 18 to 70 years old. Uh, they had to be uh, chronic phase CML. If you're a new oncology trainee, say you're a pharmacy resident, you probably have only seen chronic phase CML in your life. Um, but there is an accelerated phase and a blast phase, and we're talking just about chronic phase here. Um, and most of these drugs, you know, because they're good, they keep 
patients in that chronic phase. So you had to be chronic phase to be accrued. And this is something that's really fascinating to me. Uh, patients were recruited from June 2000 to January 2001. That's like a seven-month time period. And they were able to recruit over 11,000 patients in just six or seven months, which is pretty amazing. And they were assigned to a matinib, 400 milligrams by mouth daily, the dose we know and love today. Or what was the standard of care for CML at that time, um, subcutaneous interferon alpha, 5 million units per square meter per body surface area, plus 10 day cycles of cytarabine at a daily dose of 20 milligrams per square meter. So interferon and cytarabine, that was the, uh, the original uh, you know, gold standard for chronic phase CML. Uh, the primary endpoint was event-free survival. Um, at this point, they were also looking mostly at cytogenetic response, which is where you look at the, uh, the cells, uh, oftentimes, I think from bone marrow, yeah, from bone marrow, uh, and you're looking at the number of Philadelphia chromosomes. So you're looking uh, under the microscope, so to speak. Uh, this was fairly early in uh, the area of, of molecular response assessment, where you're looking at uh, reverse transcriptase PCR, RT-PCR transcripts of BCR able as a ratio to able. Uh, so, so going back to the O3 paper, after 19 months of follow-up, they published their initial results for the IRIS study. Um, and there are a couple different uh, maybe goal posts we look for for CML, the first being complete hematologic response. And we like to see that by three months in CML. So a complete hematologic response is this patient who has CML who had a CBC that was completely out of whack, oftentimes with a really high white count, uh, maybe a high platelet or maybe low platelet, <clears throat> that those normalize. So basically the CBC looks normal within three months. Um, and then uh, at that time, major or complete cytogenetic response was what we looked for. And now we mostly look for molecular response. But a major cytogenetic response was that you had fewer than 35% Philadelphia chromosome cells. And a complete cytogenetic response was no Philadelphia chromosome in the cells uh, that were investigated. Uh, <clears throat> They, um, we'll start with the primary endpoint actually. So the primary endpoint was, um, was event-free survival and there was a statistically significant difference in event-free survival. And if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curve here uh, for, um, you know, you can, fit a, you can fit a fairly fat number two pencil uh, between the fat part of these curves. If we look at the major cytogenetic response Kaplan-Meier curve, you can fit a fat yellow highlighter between those curves starting basically at three months all the way out through two years even with median of follow-up of 19 months. So a, an incredibly wide difference in separation of these Kaplan-Meier curves. Um, complete hematologic response um, and this is this is you know early on the, the, the early paper 95 plus percent with a matinib compared to 55 percent with interferon and cytarabine. Um, this was a crossover study, so patients were able to cross over, and uh, after they crossed over, those who had interferon <clears throat> plus cytarabine and switched to imatinib, 82% of those folks had a complete hematologic response. <clears throat> if you look at complete cytogenetic response, which just as a refresher, um, is no Philadelphia chromosome positive cells uh, when you look. 74% with imatinib compared to 8.5% with interferon and cytarabine. It's about as big a difference as you can possibly get with any endpoint with two drug regimens. Uh, so pretty striking stuff. Uh, now what we'll see is that um, because patients were able to switch 
from interferon inside therapy to imatinib that you know it's going to be hard to see an overall survival benefit in these folks. So then the question becomes in the 06 paper is was this great response from imatinib maintained over time? We'll get to that. Let's look at the side effects from the 03 study. Uh, superficial edema, 55% with imatinib compared to 9% with interferon. More nausea with interferon, 61% versus 44%. Muscle cramps, 38% versus 11%. So more muscle cramps with imatinib. Musculoskeletal pain was about a draw, about 40% in both groups. Uh, a little bit more rash with imatinib. Uh, much more fatigue with interferon, much more flu-like symptoms. Um, but if you were, say, uh, someone naive to oncology and you looked in a package insert or a drug monograph for imatinib, the side effects that are going to scare you when you read through are going to be hematologic side effects like neutropenia and anemia, thrombocytopenia. Well, all of those, so anemia, neutropenia, and thrombocytopenia were less prevalent in the imatinib group compared to interferon alpha and cytarabine. So we have a drug that's taken by mouth daily. It's pretty easy to take easier for patients from a GI distress standpoint if they take it with food um, that is a lot better and has a, has a fairly, you know, has a favorable safety profile and is safer than, uh, you know, certainly better than two, you know, sub-Q injections of interferon and cytarabine. Uh, so going back to the, to the 06 paper, uh, this was five to five and a half years after everyone had been on um, treatment. 65% of those eventually in the interferon cytarabine group crossed over to receive imatinib. Um, so notably, the, the side effect profile for imatinib becomes more favorable over time. So in years one or two, for example, 19% of patients, or there were 19, um, yeah, 19 of patients had neutropenia with imatinib. That goes down to 3% by years three and four, and 1% after year four. There's a similar trend for thrombocytopenia going from 8% to 1% to less than 1%. Uh, and when you look at, say, response, whether it's hematologic response uh, or, let's say, complete cytogenetic response, you see a plateau after about three years in the imatinib arm with, with things uh, with complete cytogenetic response being achieved uh, in, say, a quarter of patients by six months, about half, um, more like 60% of patients at 12 months and then about 80% of patients by 30 months. And that 80% is a pretty good benchmark because the total five-year event-free survival with the matinib in the IRA study was 83%. There is an eight-year follow-up uh, published uh, as an abstract in blood um, in 2009, probably, presumably from the ASH annual meeting, and that <clears throat> the eight-year event-free survival is 81%. So from five years to eight years, the event-free survival goes from 83% to 81%, consistent with kind of a plateau of 80%. So what that means, if you you know kind of break it down very simply, is that four out of five patients started on a matinee with chronic phase CML are going to still be in chronic phase CML um, without any sign uh, with the eyeball by looking for Philadelphia chromosome um, eight years later. Now, <clears throat> as you look closer, and look for, say, the BCR-abled transcripts with uh, reverse, transcri reverse transcriptase PCR, the, you know, the, the complete disappearance of evidence of CML uh, goes away, and we still do see you know, minimally detectable BCR-abled transcripts. And, and the monitoring of, of major and complete molecular response and MMR 4.5 and, and things like that, uh, I'll save for maybe a different podcast. <coughs> Pardon me, jeez. Um, going back to the discussion here at the end of this 06 paper, uh, remarkably, no patient who had a complete cytogenetic response 
and a reduction in levels of B-cerebral transcripts of at least three log at 12 or 18 months, starting after imatinib, progressed of CML by 60 months. And that's consistent with what we know. The deeper your MMR, the deeper response that you get as far as looking at those BCR-able transcripts by RT-PCR, the better we know that you're going to do. Um, this is interesting. Quote, anecdotal reports suggest that the discontinuation of, discontinuation of imatinib, even in patients with undetectable levels of BCR-able transcripts, results in relapse. And they cite five references. We now know that patients who have a deep molecular response of at least, you know, three log reduction, ideally more, for two to three years, um, say about half of those patients are able to stop their TKI um, successfully and not have to start it back. The other half, you know, the B-cerebral transcripts come back, you start them back on their TKI, and they seem to do okay. In fact, uh, we mentioned that on this podcast that the nilotinib package insert in the United States has been updated to reflect similar criteria to that as far as nilotinib continuation. And I will I'll, um, I'll kind of finish looking at, at this study with, uh, you know, in the fine print of all these studies, it talks about Dr. Drucker's institution is the site of the clinical trial sponsored by Novartis, uh, but neither he nor his laboratory received res- reports receiving funding from Novartis. Uh, and in fact, uh, legend has it, and, and I'll have to confirm this for a later pod, that um, the drug company was really not too keen on developing this as a drug. And if not, who knows what would have happened with the whole uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitor movement, if not for imatinib. Um, you could argue that there have not been as successful TKIs as imatinib. We can lump disatinib and allotinib in that as well. Um, for example, if you have ALK-positive metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, EGFR-positive non-small cell lung cancer, BRAF, mutated uh, metastatic melanoma, you could start on TKI therapy. Uh, works pretty well, good response rates, decent duration of response, but the progression-free survival curves don't plateau at 80%. They plateau closer to 0% because resistance develops um, because oftentimes there are multiple pathways activated um, and the polyclonal nature and heterogeneous nature of cancer. Um, CML is different. I don't know why it's different, but it does make it a, one of, if not the best target of a druggable mutation, uh, that being imatinib and other imatinib-like B-serable tyrosine kinase inhibitors for Philadelphia chromosome positive diseases, especially CML. That's what. Uh, that's all I have. That's the IRIS study. Uh, very, very uh, impactful landmark study. Um, I would not be surprised if you are doing, you know, a malignant heme rotation. Uh, and somebody asks you, uh, what's the landmark CML study? Especially if you're a PGY2 oncology pharmacy resident or in training uh, to to work every day in cancer with cancer patients. Thank you for listening. I uh, I want to thank you all for the the, the, the positive feedback. Uh, for the ratings, you can find us on the iTunes store. Give us a five-star rating. Give us a nice review. Tell us what you'd like to hear more of. Uh, we're also available on Google Play and Stitcher, and you can find us on those platforms as well. I would, uh, again, thanks thanks for listening. And you can follow me on Twitter at FarmDetanip. You can follow the podcast at OncoFarmPod. You can find us on Instagram uh, on the OncoFarm handle as well, OncoFarmPod. Uh, on Instagram. So once again, thanks for listening, and remember, doses matter.